Thank you. Please be seated. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. We'll begin to read in verse 25 of Ephesians 4. And then we'll read one verse in chapter 5. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak you truth, each one with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not. Let not the Son Go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hand the thing that is good, that he may have whereof to give to him that has need. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth but such as is good for edifying, as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice and be you kind one to another tender hearted forgiving each other even as God also in Christ forgave you and then chapter 5 verse 18 and be not drunk with wine, wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, please with me, join in prayer in seeking our Lord's face and his help. Our Father, now by your Spirit, in the name of your Son, whose blood was shed, that we may be given ears to hear your word and hearts to love it, come near and address us and get to our hearts. Help the one who speaks that he may do so in more than word and in the arm and the intelligence of the flesh. 
but that these things may be delivered in the very power of the Holy Spirit about whom we preach. And Lord, we pray that you would not allow any of us so to deal with the things spoken and the things seen in your word that we would shuffle it aside even in the least bit or deflect its power and its force upon our inner man but that we may be by your grace subdued and chained to your will. Lord, we present ourselves before you as sinners, prone to wonder, and even now, no doubt much in us in this place would not want to hear some of what you would wish to tell us. O oh Lord, let us not escape your searching eye, and let us not escape your voice and make our hearts the slaves of Christ in a way in which they have not been yet. We ask, O oh God, that you may not allow us to do this alone. We confess our weakness and our unworthiness and ask for the forgiveness of our sins and ask you, O oh Lord, to come in grace and display your power in turning our hearts and then we pray for those who are in our midst, who are strangers to your grace, that you would, as it were, cause them, even as they hear, to pick up some truth of the gospel that would deal with their hearts, and that you would show them their need and grant unto them faith in the Lord Jesus, saving them from their sins. Lord, build up the church and give us your help from heaven now, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. From these brief texts which we have read, we conclude that there is an aspect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which we have in our study on the Spirit not examined closely. And this aspect must be understood if we are to have a thorough comprehension of the subject we've undertaken. Bad thinking on this particular aspect of the work of the Spirit, which is our subject today, has caused great harm to multitudes in the churches. The thing about which I'm speaking is what I'm calling the dynamic nature of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The dwelling of the Spirit of Christ in the saint is no static experience. No less than the living Christ is in us. God himself is not only with us, but in us. Surely, we would expect more of this relation than mere words, or a religious dogma, or a dry doctrine. The Spirit of God lives in the believer and in the church. And so, the, the thing about which we meditate is the dynamic that so often has been missed and misunderstood. Now, we are going to approach our study today on three broad headings. The first, we'll consider the foundation truth 
on which we build our thinking regarding the dynamic nature of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Second, we'll consider the fact of this dynamic reality as seen in the Scripture. And third, we will concentrate today on the first aspect of this dynamic nature of his indwelling, namely the grieving or the diminishing of the Spirit. But before we dive in, suffer me one word of clarification. Acquainted with saving faith and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. You who have yet to humble yourselves before God as sinners in need of a Savior, and who have yet to cast your hopes all on Jesus, have no part or lot in this matter about which we speak today. You have not the Spirit of God at all. You are dead in your sins, and you're dead to God. May God help you, as the dogs in the parable of Jesus to the woman of Syrophoenicia, to pick up some of the crumbs that fall from the children's table today. May in your eavesdropping on the saint's family talk, you find yourself longing for the Savior which they possess. It is not my desire to omit or to neglect unbelievers. My heart's desire and the heart's desire of this church is that you be saved. We do not address ourselves merely to the church because we don't care about your salvation, but because we believe that your salvation is often connected with the church's success in not grieving the Spirit. It is a vital subject that we undertake. But I wanted you who don't know the Lord to know that we're not purposely leaving you out, but hoping that you'll listen carefully and that God's mercies may fall on you, even as I address myself essentially to the believer in Christ. Having then said that word of clarification, let us first consider the foundation or the foundational truth on which we build our thinking regarding the dynamic nature of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And that foundational truth is this, the irrevocable residence of the Holy Spirit in every believer. The foundation on which we build our thinking regarding the dynamic nature of his indwelling is that his residence in the believer is irrevocable. It's permanent. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord has promised that not only would the Spirit of God be with us, but he would be in us. And we have seen in recent days the doctrine of the New Testament that says we are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. And even in the passage we read a minute ago in verse 30 of Ephesians 4, we're set told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. He has been given to the saints forever. He will never utterly leave. In the believer's heart, the Spirit will ever abide. Now, I want to read a couple of words from the draft revision 
of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. The 1689 Confession is the one that our church has adopted and believes and follows as a good summary of our convictions of truth in the Scripture. But in the revision proposal that has been set before many of the pastors in Reformed Baptist life, we read these words. Although the Spirit resides irrevocably in the hearts of all true Christians from the moment of their conversion being received once for all nevertheless the same spirit continues to be supplied to them throughout their lives the, the focus on this paragraph that I want you to have is although the Holy Spirit resides irrevocably in the hearts of all true Christians from the moment of their conversion being received once for all. That is a statement of biblical truth. We've established that in our series, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive, according to God's promise, the irrevocable gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in you forever. The next paragraph puts it in another way. The gift of the Holy Spirit is never completely taken away from true Christians. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is never taken utterly away from the true believer. But, he can be so grieved by their rebellions and backslidings that for a season his presence is greatly withdrawn and his influence is largely withheld. Therefore it is the duty of all believers neither to grieve nor to quench the Holy Spirit. Now in that summary statement in those two paragraphs we lay the foundation for our thinking that though there is much dynamic in the nature of his indwelling, he is an irrevocable gift, and he is the seal on every true believer until the day of the redemption of our bodies when the Lord Jesus comes again. It is upon that foundation that we build our thinking regarding the dynamic nature of his indwelling. And apart from that foundation, we will greatly err and be led seriously astray from the truth. Let us not mistake the fact the Spirit of God will never leave utterly His true people. So when we speak of the dynamic nature of His indwelling, we do not mean that sometimes He abides in the Christian and sometimes He's utterly gone from the Christian. We do not mean that you may have the Spirit living in you for a time and then if you do something really bad, God may give you up forever and you are lost and your salvation is gone. The Spirit has utterly departed. No, the foundation on which we build our thinking of the dynamic of His indwelling is the fact that His permanence, His irrevocable gift is true and real. He will never utterly forsake or leave the true believer. Now having stated that foundational truth, consider with me in the second place, the fact, however, 
of the dynamic nature of the Spirit's indwelling. And we've asserted that his indwelling is dynamic. It is not static. There's something of a, we may even say, a sovereign unpredictability about his indwelling. It is not some sort of established uh, thing that we take for granted and never deal with, never look at, and never consider with seriousness. There is a fact that in his indwelling, he as a living person, as God himself, is dynamic in the way in which he works in the believer. Now, this dynamic nature is twofold, and this is a summary of the issue. The twofold dynamic nature of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is that he may increase in his influence the filling of the Spirit. As we read briefly in that first paragraph, the same Spirit continues to be supplied to them throughout their lives so that it is, it is the duty of those already indwelt by God's Spirit both to request further supplies and larger measures of the Holy Spirit and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is, in his dynamic living person, an increasing commodity, may we say. He is able to be increased or he is able to increase his influence, and that increasing influence ought to be the desire and the quest of every saint. It is not set. You may have larger measures. You ought to have larger measures. You must never stop looking for and pursuing larger measures of the Spirit in you. He continues to be supplied. That's the positive aspect of the dynamic nature of his indwelling. But the second aspect is the diminishing, the negative aspect. Not only is it possible to get larger measures, greater supplies of the Spirit, but it is also possible to get a lessening, a diminishing, a decreasing of his supply and of his influence. And that is what we saw in that second paragraph. He can be so grieved by their rebellion and backsliding that for a season his presence is greatly withdrawn and his influence is largely withheld. Therefore it is the duty of all believers neither to grieve nor to quench the Holy Spirit. But let's prove our point biblically. It may be easy to make such a statement, but is this what the Bible teaches? And I say, yes, exactly this is what the Bible teaches. The framers of the confession were steeped in biblical truth, and they summarized this truth in the words we've read in the confession. But listen as we look at some of the passages that prove our point. First, as to the increasing of the Spirit, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Now you saw that in the text we read in chapter 5, we are told not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is our duty under the commandment of apostolic injunction that we do all we can to be about the business of being filled with the Spirit. But in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14, 
the Apostle Paul, who in the first chapter established the fact that the Spirit is upon us and in us forever. He as We have been sealed by that Spirit as the earnest of our inheritance and of God's inheritance. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he speaks of his prayer for them in saying this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, that you, now who are the you? They are the people to whom the Spirit has been given, in whom the Spirit lives. They are the people who have him on their hearts and in their hearts as the earnest, as the down payment pledge of the perfect redemption that is theirs in the future in glory. They are Christians. They are indwelt by God the Spirit that you may be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So apparently to have the Spirit living in you is not the same as having all the strength of that Spirit and his influence that you could have. So the Apostle is praying that through the Spirit who lives in them, they may be strengthened by his power in the inner man. There's more to be experienced from the Spirit's indwelling. That Christ, in verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought Christ already dwelt in the believer's heart through faith. He does. This is not an evangelistic prayer, a prayer asking that they would become Christians. This is a prayer that seeks to see a growth in the manifestation and the fruit and the beauty of the indwelling Christ in them by faith. That their faith may grow, that as that faith grows, their comprehension of what the love of the saints is that is incomprehensible, may grow, that they may have larger evidences and larger measures of the indwelling Spirit of Christ who has already been given to them. Then turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. And he's dealing with this very serious matter of uncleanness, fornication, impurity in the possession of the body and the governing of the body's appetites. And he says in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 4, God has called us not for uncleanness, but in sanctification. Therefore he that rejects, and he means he that in this regard decides he's not going to listen to the voice of God as it appeals to the need for purity and cleanness in the heart and in the body. He that will not discipline his body. He that will not mortify the remaining lusts of the flesh. He that rejects, rejects not man, but God. And what's the significance of this to the believer? God, who gives, present tense, his Spirit, his Holy Spirit unto you. He is rejecting the voice of the one who is in the position of continuing to supply his Spirit to the one who already possesses that Spirit. God continues to give that Spirit. And he is in the position of being grieved if you reject his word. Then turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. 
seeing the dynamic. Verse 3 of Galatians chapter 3. He's dealing with the problem of trying to build their righteousness on things other than faith. But he uses terminology here that serves our purpose in this subject. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now perfected in the flesh? If you began in the Spirit, if the converting work of God was by the power of the Spirit through faith, do you think that you're going to continue to grow under your perfection in any other way than the continued supplies of the Spirit by faith? If you thought that you became a Christian by faith, by the mighty operation of the Spirit of God, do you now think you're going to grow on to perfection apart from that same supply and means? The assumption is, of course not. And then turn with me back to Acts chapter 13 for an example of this dynamic spirit work. Acts 13.52. In verse 48 we're reading upon the preaching to these Gentiles of Paul and Barnabas urging them to continue in the grace of God. It says in verse 48, the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spread abroad throughout all the region. But the Jews urged on the devout women of honorable estate and the chief men of the city and stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and cast them out of their borders. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples, already having the Spirit, were filled with the Spirit. Something of a dynamic picture here. Not of something, so I already have the Spirit. I already had that experience. I already possess all I need. I already have all I want. If that is, if you mean by that, that there's not to be continued growth and measures of the influence of the Spirit, you're in an unbiblical posture. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31 is another example. After the arrest of the apostles and the threatening of the apostles not to preach in Jesus' name, the disciples gathered together to pray being threatened with death, with persecution, if they kept on preaching in Christ's name, they decided to pray for the apostles. And then it says in verse 31, when they had prayed, these are the disciples, when they had prayed, the place was shaken wherein they were gathered, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There's an increasing here of boldness in preaching, and it comes out of the increasing of the measure of the Spirit within the disciples and upon the disciples. But finally, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, there's a significant verse. Verse 11, verse 13 of Luke 11. Jesus having encouraged prayer, 
And having grounded that encouragement on the fact that the, our Father in Heaven loves His children, is gracious to them, and He compares our own fathering of our children in the earth. He says in verse 13, If you then, you fathers on the earth, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? The doctrine of the dynamic increasing of the Spirit in the Scriptures is clear. This text is speaking of those who already have the Spirit. They are God's children, and God is inviting His children who have His Spirit, who have the Spirit of adoption in them, to pray for more of His Spirit. He's saying, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Spirit to you who are in heaven? You see that? Here's a picture, not that I'm a Christian, but I don't yet have the Spirit. We've learned that from other texts. You can't be one without the other. You can't be an adopted son of God apart from the Spirit. And yet the Lord is speaking to children of a Father in heaven. Not every person on, on the earth, God the Father of all and everyone is everybody's brother. That's not the biblical doctrine. We're not all brothers in this world. They're of God's household and the household of the devil. They're the enemies and the friends of Jehovah. They're God's children and they're those that don't belong in his family at all because they've not come to his son in faith. So the Lord addresses his children and he says to his children, you may expect your father in heaven when you come to him for the good things associated with his spirit that he will, as a gracious, good father, much more than you would give good things to your children in the carnal sense, give the Holy Spirit to those, his children, who already have that spirit, who ask him. You see the picture there. It ought to be clear that he's addressing people who have the spirit and promising they shall be given the spirit, the increasing measure. But look at some text regarding the grieving or the decreasing or the diminishing of the Spirit in order to prove biblically our point. We don't need to turn back to Ephesians 4, but look at Psalm 51, verse 11. We've read verse 30, Grieve not the Spirit. But in Psalm 51, the psalmist and brethren we have, I believe, asserted and established early in our study on the Holy Spirit that the Old Testament saints were indwelt by the same Spirit of which the New Testament saints speak. Though there is a great increase in the manifestation of that truth, the revelation of that truth, the Old Testament saint could not possibly have achieved what he achieved and been described as he was described apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The mortification of sin, faith in Christ, crying out for great measures of God's work, victory over enemies of God, the Spirit of God, and the Scriptures establish it. And here's David, an Old Testament saint, who in the heart was acquainted with gospel truth, though yet not fully revealed who the name of this person would be from Nazareth. He saw the essence of gospel provision. In verse 11, having sinned, now confessing, he says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Now, without going into all the implications of what may be included in that request, at least there's the knowledge and the consciousness and the sensitivity on David's part as a son of God that there was a diminishing of the Spirit of God already evidenced and the threat, if he doesn't do something, that he might lose all of that influence at all put together. Don't let that happen. Whatever you're doing. You say, well, why would he pray such a thing if he already knew that he had the abiding permanent presence of the Spirit? Well, why do you pray that the Lord would come quickly? You already know he's going to. Why do you ask him to save his elect? He already said he would. Why do you ask him to bless the preaching of the gospel? That's already promised. As we heard this morning, you anticipate and long for and seek and pray for things which you expect God to do. The more you expect, the more you pray for them. The more faith you exercise when you seek them. And here's a man who understands God's promise and the dynamics of the Spirit saying, Don't take your spirit utterly from me. But finally turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For that other definitive text in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. He's giving a list of the kinds of things that the church at Thessalonica needs to be aware of and need to be practicing. It starts in humility, regarding the other more highly than myself, regarding those who are leaders in the church, esteeming them exceeding highly in love for their work's sake, not prating about them, not gossiping behind their back, not letting sinners outside slander them without you opening your mouth in defense, but esteeming them exceeding highly in love for their work's sake, not looking for ways to put them down. Be at peace among yourselves, he says in verse 13. And then he lists this, this list of exhortations regarding long-suffering, compassion, admonition to the disorderly, non-rendering evil for evil, following that which is good and toward all, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything's giving thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus toward you. Verse 19 says, in this context, quench not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. Have you ever had that experience? of upon the very threshold or maybe upon the in the wake of God's fresh outpouring of mercies you went back into some old attitude of sin and killed and crushed everything that had been done in your heart have you ever experienced a prayer meeting where someone who decided in the corporate prayer meeting that his agenda was more important and more intelligent than that by God's leaders decided to run off on some tangent that had nothing to do with where the corporate people of God were praying. And if you've ever been in a prayer meeting in which the Spirit of God was moving and there was a sense of God's blessing and all of a sudden one carnal selfish prayer killed it and crushed the prayer meeting. I've been in those. You ever been in those? That can happen. Have you ever seen God rolling and moving on your life one day and the next day it's as though He's gone? Sometimes it's because we quench the fire of the Spirit of God by pouring the water of our sin and our insensitivity upon it. Some of you have never yet in your life gone two days in a row 
under the felt blessing of God because you continue to go back to your same old habits. You never enjoy a season of blessing because of your foolish quenching of the Spirit's work in you. May God help us to see that there are these two aspects clearly in the Scripture. There is the doctrine of the complete work of the Holy Spirit at the outset of conversion, the once-for-all indwelling. But there also is the doctrine of the incomplete work of the Holy Spirit at conversion, that work by which he is given but not in the fullest measure that the saints should expect and pursue. There is that twofold aspect of the work of the Spirit, the foundation he's given and he'll stay. But the fact is, Though he is a permanent resident and the true believer, he is able greatly to be affected, may we say, in increasing and in diminishing. Having established, I believe, the fact, at least, that the Bible does speak of this reality, I think our own experience would support it, we go to the third thing this morning and consider in more depth the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And the way we're going to attempt to do it is by under, dividing it into five parts. First, we'll seek to define what we mean by grieving the Spirit. Second, we'll state the reason or the possibility. How can he be grieved? Why is he so grievable? Third, the cost of grieving the Spirit. Fourth, the causes of grieving the Spirit. And fifth, if God wills, the recovery or the cure for the grieving of the Spirit. First of all, he, as I discussed with you, the definition of the grieving of the Spirit. And as we discussed it this week, it's clear that this is a very difficult issue. It's hard to define what we actually mean by grieving the Spirit. We might be tempted to define our, our terms in the way we see human beings being grieved. But I think that would be a mistake. I think it would be an erroneous thing to assume that by grief, on the part of God, we mean the identical thing we mean when we see people's various forms of grief. And I think we could end up in a plethora of confusion if we don't discipline ourselves to define the term from a biblical perspective rather than from our own experience. What I would suggest to you by way of definition is this. The grieving of the Spirit, or when the Spirit is seen to be grieved, we are not speaking of a passion of some sort of, of emotional outburst that has been um, provoked by an outward act and therefore, though he would like not to be this way, he sort of finds himself falling prey to an emotional uh, satisfaction of pressure upon his emotions. I don't believe that's a proper response. I don't think you can establish that in Scripture. Yea, I think if you try to, you're going to have some real problems with serious attributes of God. We're not speaking of God being in a position that you can act in such a way that God, despite his intent and despite his nature, sort of gets affected and he goes over in the corner and sobs for a while. We're not speaking of God losing his equilibrium for a bit in uncontrollable weeping. We're not speaking of God having a chip on his shoulder, having a thin skin, uh, being unable to deal with problems. Brethren, if that's the case, if God's got a thin skin, uh, we've got a serious problem in how the world is even standing this morning. God's not like us. Some of you want him to be. But he's not. Thanks, thanks be to God, he's not. 
let me define it as a metaphorical expression. And I think, you, I think if you're willing to do some extended study, you'll see the wisdom of this kind of definition. A metaphorical expression of God's fixed and extreme hatred of sin on the one hand. God's fixed and extreme hatred of sin on the one hand. Grieving the Spirit is accomplished by sin. And the reaction of God to sin is not some sort of an emotional fly off the cuff. Not a passion, as our confession states, God is without parts, without passion, as we would define it humanly. But it is an expression metaphorically of what is the result of certain kinds of attitudes and behavior in our lives when we see God respond according to his fixed position and attitude toward that kind of action, action and attitude. God has a fixed hatred of sin and is, in, is an extreme hatred. He is of purer eye than to look upon sin. Now, why do we add that to our definition? Because some of us seem to forget that little sins are important to God. And some of us still are finding ways, if we could legitimately, to let ourselves go on some areas of known righteousness. And some still resist the pastor, or the Sunday school teacher, or the uncle, or the cousin, or the brother, or the sister, when, when we be begin to think they're about to rebuke us or admonish us in that area. Some husbands still have shut the door to their wives on areas of known problem, they have in the past said, Honey, tell me when you see it. And when she opens her mouth to tell him, he shuts her mouth with his rebuke. Because there are areas we don't want to be treated. We are scared to face them. God hates sin. And he has a fixed hatred. It's kin to the wrath of God. It's not God flying off the handle and having a fit of anger. It is God's settled opposition to all sin that shows itself in what we call wrath. What the Bible describes as wrath. You say, well boy, it looks like God's lost his head. It looks like he's flown off the handle. When God blows apart a city and wipes out an entire countryside and sends a pestilence and describes it as anger, then what do you mean? There's not passion in it. I don't mean that it's not hot. I don't mean that it doesn't hurt. I don't mean that it's not the most terrible thing you can imagine. I mean that it is not sent from one who's temporarily lost control of himself. It comes from the character of God who cannot handle sin undealt with. Fixed hatred and extreme hatred of sin. Not a passion, but a metaphorical expression of God's fixed and extreme hatred of sin and of his holy sensitiveness. That's a Puritan word. Instead of using the word sensitivity, which is a modern uh, way of saying it, sensitiveness is a bit fuller. To any neglect, his holy sensitiveness to any neglect or undervaluing of his influence, his person, or his work. The grief of the Spirit is a metaphorical expression of, first, God's fixed and extreme hatred of sin, 
and second, his holy sensitiveness to any neglect or undervaluing of his influence, person, and work. Now that's a mouthful, and we are not going to be able to examine all the aspects of that in our study. But that is a concise working definition of the grief of the Spirit. Obviously, as God, who is complete in himself, he cannot be resisted, he cannot be quenched, he cannot be grieved in an absolute sense. You don't have power over God. You don't cause God to react in some chosen way. God is God. How do you resist that in the scripture, does that mean you can stop what God intends to do and wants to do? No, no. In an absolute sense, we can't use terminology like that, but the Bible does use terminology like that. We must see it in its metaphorical sense. You don't quench God. Who's ever quenched God? And yet quench not the Spirit. So it's language designed to warn us of very real and drastic effects from our behavior and our attitudes. And it doesn't mean that God's sort of sitting there waiting to be manipulated by our outbursts and therefore he reacts, we react, he reacts, we react and he gets the last word because he's just bigger. That's not the doctrine of the Bible. God is not waiting to see who wins this and going to win in the long run because he's just bigger. God is in complete control of himself. If the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, then it, we must assume the Spirit is in self-control. So understand that sense. The grief, or to grieve God, is to disregard his voice, to oppose his influence, to slight his kindness, to neglect his leading, so as to cause his withdrawal of influence, the withdrawal of his felt presence, the withdrawal of his blessing. What I'm saying is, brethren, that our behavior does indeed result in certain behavior of God. You see, we've got two doctrines here. God is complete in himself, needs nothing outside himself, is in perfect control of himself, and it is as though he doesn't need any, nothing else affects him on the one hand. Yet on the other hand, the equally true doctrine that your behavior causes God to behave in certain ways. You say, I don't quite understand how that can be. Brethren, how can you be? How can God be? There's a lot we don't understand. But the picture is that certain things we do cause God to do other things in response to them, and you best not forget that. Somebody may say, well, I don't have to think prayer really matters, but the Bible says do it, so we'll do it. It's like saying baptism doesn't matter, but we do it. Or preaching doesn't matter. Or the Word of God doesn't matter, but we read it. No, no. When you pray, God hears. When you don't pray, God doesn't hear. When you don't give, the church misses some of the, what you gave. You, well, God doesn't need my money. But when you don't give, there's money that would have been there that wasn't given. There's an effect from our behavior. We can quench and grieve and resist the Spirit, not as though we're dealing with a thin-skinned, immature brass with whom we can make no slip or wrong move without provoking him, the way we are with each other. But we're dealing with a steady, righteous, perfect response to our dealings and our attitudes. 
That's the definition. Second, the reason. Why is such a thing possible? And I borrow from Spurgeon's phrasing, as he lists five reasons for the spirit grieving. First, for holiness sake. For holiness sake we may grieve the spirit. The reason it's possible to grieve or to quench the spirit is because of his commitment to truth and holiness. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth. You grieve him because you don't value the truth as he values it and you don't value holiness as he values it. But for holiness sake, he's grieved. Even if you're not, he is. He doesn't operate on the basis of how little you understand. He operates on what he knows. And that's everything. And though you may not think what you did is so bad, and though you may not even know it's sin because of your ignorance of the scripture, he knows. And he acts in concert with his knowledge. That's why sometimes you're not able to know for sure why things aren't going well, and you have to have a road map drawn for you to open your eyes to your stupidity and your sin. David. A long time after committing sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and the nation and God, a prophet has to come, give him a parable, and then tell him, you're the guy, before it finally dawns on him. Then he's able to look back and know what was going on to him all that period of time when the, the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. But he needed a prophet of God to come and shake his conscience. It's one of the reasons you need elders. It's one of the reasons you need one another. There are things you will not deal with in yourself if somebody else doesn't make you deal with them. And if you think you're the most righteous man that ever lived, that you're, you're an exception to that rule, God will show you somewhere down the line you're not. For holiness sake, his view of purity, he's graced when we don't share that view. For second, for our sake, Brethren, we are God's children. We are the beloved who bear the image of God. How in the world would we think that when we contradict that image in our attitude, in our actions, that it's not going to grieve him? As John Owen is quoted by Octavius Winslow, the heart of the Spirit is infinitely more tender towards us than that of the most affectionate parent can be towards an only child. And when he, with cost and care, has nourished and brought us up into some growth and progress and spiritual affections, wherein all his concerns in us do lie, for us to grow cold, dull, earthly-minded, to cleave unto the pleasures and lusts of this world, how is he grieved? How is he provoked? You're talking about a father who sees his own children in whom he has invested so much doing the very thing that contradicts the end for which he invested it. Are you a father? Do you know what it feels like when one of your children begins to show the characteristics of the kids at school? Begins to show the attitude of a brat and you know the scriptures teaching that those children who rise up and rebel who don't like to heed counsel 
who shut their mouth, their ears to their father's and mother's instruction. You know their end. You know what it's going to cost them. You've invested your life into them. You've prayed for them. You've paid for them. You've been patient with them. And then to see them after so much questioning your love, being angry because you haven't given them what the brother or sister got, griping and fussing and bickering among themselves. Does it not break a parent's heart to hear children fussing? just as it breaks the children's heart to hear parents fussing. Our Father in heaven is grieved. Our, the Spirit of God is grieved for our sake as his children when we walk amiss. He's also grieved for Jesus' sake. It is the integrity and the honor, the reputation of Christ, which is at stake in a church. And the Spirit of God will uphold that honor at all costs. And he grieves when the church begins to dishonor Christ, either publicly as a corporate body or privately among people with, we can't watch. In your business, with your mouth, with your private seeking after sins, with your private lusts and greed, you grieve the Spirit for Jesus' sake. For the church's sake he's grieved. What victories have been forfeited by the church for her various wedges of gold in, in the knapsack. How many battles have been lost in the prayer meeting because of an attitude resident in some of the members refusing to sanctify and sacrifice their pride for the sake of God's church? How many times has the preacher had to fight past the wall that's been built before him by people's hearts in the church? And he wonders when he finishes if God was even present. How many times have sinners sat and not been moved by preaching because the church hadn't been moved previously by that same preaching? And the Spirit of God is not about the business of supplying ample evidences of his saving mercies to churches who ordinarily are occupied by a grieved spirit. So the Spirit of God is often grieved for the sake of his church and her reputation. And sometimes he is grieved for the sinner's sake. The Apostle Paul was greatly sensitive to our doing anything that would give the enemy cause to say an evil word against us. And he, he says on more than one occasion that the evil one have no evil thing to say against us. That he that is of the contrary part have no evil thing to say against us. Dear brethren, when you cause men outside of Christ to have an evil thing legitimately to say against the church, what have you done? You have, you're going to grieve the Spirit for sinner's sake. Don't fluff it off. Say, well, if God's sovereign, he's going to save them anyway. I tell you, he may well do it, but I would not want to stand in the place of judgment and have that blood on my hands. And I warn you, dear brethren, before you easily think of all those other people who do these kinds of things, you better stay humble. I'm not finished yet. In the third place, consider with me the cost of grieving the Spirit. I've got a lot on the list, but I'm going to try to be brief. The first thing that it costs us to grieve the Spirit, just in case you think this is not such a big deal, is that all of a sudden God's place is unknown. Where is the Lord? There's a little verse in Hosea that I found this morning in my daily reading. And I thought it would be appropriate to put in this sermon. 
They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. He is describing the condition of Israel and Ephraim. And he's predicting that there's coming a time when they're going to go to the appointed place of worship. And they're going to go there to find God, and God's not going to be found. Because he's withdrawn himself from them. Have you ever had that experience? I have. You say, Pastor, I've never had that experience. Well, I'm thankful that the sanctifying effects of God's grace are so supreme in you, but I tell you, it could be you just never noticed. Maybe you're so accustomed to his absence, you don't notice his withdrawal. Maybe he has never entered and so you don't notice when he exits. Isn't it a horrible thought for you not to know where to get, how to get to God? Where do I find God? Do you not know that experience of getting on your knees and literally cannot get the prayers out of your study, out of your den, out of your closet, past the ceiling? And you fight and struggle opening the book of God and it's simply a dead book to you. And sometimes for a season it's that way. We're not saying that's always because the Spirit's grieved. God's withdrawals, sometimes they're unexplainable. We're not trying to predict everything and explain everything. There's a mystery here. Sometimes there's a period of dryness and there's no obvious reason. But often it's the grief of the Spirit. God's place is unknown. Where is the Lord? What a dreadful experience. I tell you, I cannot imagine a more bitter experience than one who has known the presence of God not to be able to feel it and find it. Is that not a dreadful thing? And one of the most terrible things for a pastor or others who love the Lord is to see people who don't seem to be bothered by it who profess themselves to be Christian. God's place is unknown. Second, God's presence and influence is withdrawn, as we've read. The quickening of the Spirit leaves us dead and dull. The comfort of the Spirit is withdrawn. Do you know that experience? The enjoyment of life is taken away. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, the psalmist had to say. He had lost the joy of God's salvation. Hadn't lost his salvation. Not, not out of belief. He just couldn't find the joy that he'd known before. What a dreadful experience that is. Brethren, when you go through that, don't fluff that off slightly. Well, I had a little bit of a rough time the last few weeks. Brethren, that's serious. That ought to break your heart. Oh, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. In fact, it leads to another cause. Then will sinners be converted to you and I'll teach transgressors your ways. One of our reasons for evangelistic weakness is that we lost the joy of salvation because of a grieved spirit. And you know what churches have done in history when that's happened? One of the things much of Christianity has done is come up with an easier way to get souls saved. So we could keep the statistics not to show the real problem. And I know a lots of men whose churches are filled with carnality, whose characteristic in the churches is not worship, 
not God's glory, but man's big shot humanistic mind and his big beauty with the big hats and the ladies strutting around in their feathers and in their multicolored chartreuse dresses attracting attention to everything but God's countenance in them. And they're characterized by this and saying, well, you can, look at God's blessing. Look at all the souls we've had saved in the last year. And they point to their statistics as evidence that surely God is smiling on what they're doing. I say to you, brethren, those very statistics are sitting out there acting in the way I've described. And there's serious question as to whether any of those are really converted souls. And yet they've lowered the standard so as to mollify the wound of the thought that God's Spirit is grieved. His purpose and influence, his presence and influence withdrawn, unanswered prayer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. The reason some of you have asked and not received is because you are still asking amiss. And God is grieved. He wants to give and cannot and at the same time maintain his own integrity. The exercise of our fruit and gifts are diminished. There are brethren who ought to be serving the church of Christ blessedly who do nothing for it because the spirit is grieved and he's taken away their serviceability. You say, well, how do you know the person's saved? I don't. But one of the fruits of grieving the spirit is that gifts and fruit are diminished. You don't love as much. You're not as joyful. Peace is disturbed. And all the things we discussed last week, see, they're diminishing when the spirit of God is grieved. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't continue to abound when the source is grieved. You, you set an axe to the root of a tree and do as we did as children and carve out a little band around the, uh, the sweet gum tree in southern Arkansas. We just whittled our little knives about a half inch band all the way around the tree just seeing if we could do it. And we just got it all the way around and the tree died. Just a little half-inch band all the way around. We cut off the life flow. And none of, no more sweet gum. We used to go off and pull that sweet gum off the side and chew it. We couldn't do it anymore. My dad was livid when he saw the little ring. He couldn't believe we'd destroyed the tree. We didn't see the results for a long time to come. My brother and I said, boy, he's angry for no reason. Look, the tree thing's still going. Leaves, the sweet gum's still there. What are you talking about? Took us about eight months to the following spring to find out what my dad knew. Some of you have grieved the Spirit and you didn't know it. You kept seeing external evidence that God must be blessing you, things going well, more money, better this, more that, everything's happy here, things going well there, nobody shot you, the pastor hadn't come and rebuked you. So if the pastor doesn't think I've done anything wrong, surely God doesn't, since they're virtually equal in my mind. Some of you have that problem. You don't want God's Spirit to deal with you. And so you've made a little line. You said, Lord, if no man ever comes and draws me a map, I'm not going to think. I'm not going to listen. So what we're suggesting here is that sometimes you've grieved the Spirit and the fruit begins to wane and you have no idea where that started and what caused it. There's further a cost, a sense of uncleanness that sweeps over a saint when God's Spirit is withdrawn because of his sin. Purge thou me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
a struggle in the soul of a man that had known a pure conscience and now he feels dirty. Brethren, that's a cost. And God makes you feel that way so you'll know there's a problem so you'll deal with it. Another cost is chastening. Now God chastens all sin. And I frankly believe that this matter of grieving the Spirit deals with a broader and a deeper and a higher thing than just a sin. I don't believe that we're dealing with a God here who, if I sin a little sin, all of a sudden he departs. I don't mean that he doesn't have, it's not effective. But I do think that this matter of grieving the Spirit is more directed toward patterns and accepted sins and habits and norms that are allowed to settle into our attitudes and our behavior. And I think the text will bear it out if you'll go back and look at the description. So the chastening is increased. The psalmist describes it in Psalm 51 as the bones that thou hast broken. Isaiah 63 describes it. They grieved his spirit and God left them and they went out and battled against the host without the Lord and they, the enemies were given power over them. Battles lost because you grieved the spirit. Some of you parents are going to lose the fight for your kids' souls if you don't get yourself straight with God. Yes, you have a measure of concern for their soul in the future. You know better than not to be. But you yourself continue to grieve his spirit and one day you're going to see the fruit of it in your children. And I'll tell you, God has a way of having our kids grow up and give us back what we gave him. You don't listen to the voice of God, there'll come a time your children will not listen to yours. You don't seek wise counsel, your children won't seek yours. Sometimes the grief of the Spirit results in this knowledge of the heavy hand of God on me day and night. Psalm 32, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. My moisture was dried up. That whole period of time, the hand of God was on David. Hand heavy. Brethren, some of you think it's your boss's hand that's bothering you. Some of you think it's your spouse that's on your back. Some of you think it's something else. It's God. When will you understand you're living before God? He takes you seriously. And much that's going on in your life is a direct result of God's dealings with you. Search your heart. Lord, what are you saying to me? Some of you haven't even asked that yet. You're trying so much to straighten out everybody else around you so your life will be smooth. You haven't even gone to God yet. But I'll tell you there's another cost for grieving the Spirit. And we found it in the text we wrote, read in Ephesians 4. Neither give place to the devil. In the midst of that discussion, the apostles says, don't give place to the devil. You know what you do? When you sin in such a way that the Spirit is grieved and backs off a bit, you know what happens? The devil gets a spot in your living room. He gets a foot in your door. You've given him a place. Well, why is the apostle so concerned about giving a place to the devil? Well, I thought the devil was already enough to be bothered with and afraid of and troubled by. I tell you, when you give the devil a place, it's awfully difficult to dislodge him. 
Do you see what happens when you do these things that lead to the grief of the Spirit? The devil gets his, gets his foothold. It's much easier to keep him out before he gets in than to get him out after he takes a seat. You ever have company stay too long? Most of us have. Some of us have been company that stayed too long. You ever notice the host began to shuffle? Mm, boy, it's been a nice visit. Thanks for coming over. You missed the hint. Or as my dad used to say, honey, let's go to bed so these people can go home. You ever had that experience? It's sometimes hard to dislodge a person once you've fed him and watered him and given him a nice comfortable seat and let him talk and listen to him and made him think that you really liked what he was saying. Some of us that are more talkative, if you want to get rid of that, just don't give us quite as much thought that you like what we're saying and we'll be quiet quicker. The devil comes in where people give him a seat and feed him and water him and it's hard to get him to leave. And there's not much worse experience than have the sense that the Satanist has a grip on your throat and you can't dislodge it. And you start noticing the lifeblood choking off and you get upset with God for letting him do that. Why would you create the devil? Why do you let the devil do this to me? Or the devil made me do it? You are the one that gave place to the devil. Don't do it. And you will do it if you follow this pattern of grieving the Spirit. And when he gets hold of you, dear brethren, watch out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle says, I have given that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh with the long-term goal that his soul be saved or the Spirit be saved in the day of the Lord. I've delivered him over into the kingdom of Satan separated him and severed him from the church so that he doesn't any longer have the protection of his bond to the church. We've excommunicated him. He's now out there in the kingdoms of the devil. Let's see how he functions with the one with whom he's been living and flirting. Pastor, that's sort of frightening. That doesn't sound very gospel. It's in the heart of the gospel. Don't give place to the devil. Sometimes you think that one area of sin which grieves the Spirit you'll keep and you'll straighten out all the rest. As we said last week, universal obedience. You know what God will do? If you say this one area, I'm going to wait a while. God will give you sin in other areas. You don't have that kind of power to select where you're going to obey and where you're not. The devil will come in where you let the door open in the house on the side and pretty soon you'll see him climbing into windows and breaking out doors and crawling all over the attic. You let him in one place, he's not going to stay next to the door. He'll fill the house. God will see to it. Well, I want quickly to go down some causes. And brethren, I know that we don't have time to go cover all these because I want to cover the causes with some degree of care and the re recovery also. But let me suggest some general causes for the grief of the Spirit as we come to a conclusion. And these are things that are gleaned from the study of the whole Scripture and we'll descend to the specifics perhaps at a later time. First of all, what is it that causes the Spirit to be grieved and bring about some of the costs we've listed? First, unbelief as 
an habitual guest in the heart. Unbelief as an habitual guest in the heart. What do I mean? Well, there are just two ways I want to show you that. There are lots of other ways that unbelief shows itself, but there are two. First of all, undervaluing the Spirit's work in you is a form of unbelief. Some call it humility. But sometimes it's a perverted pride that says, Oh, there's nothing that I've ever done that's worth anything. There's no evidence that God lives in me. Don't, I don't know if I'm a Christian and I, I can't believe I would be saved. I, uh, there's no fruit. There's no change. No, well, I say this to you. If you're correct, you know there's a Bible cure for that problem. You repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Quit, quit talking about it. Eventually, there's no more need for counsel. You've got a problem. You don't think you're saved. Save yourself from this untoward generation. Turn to Christ. Some people don't love to live in that sort of dialogue. They like to chat about, oh, I'm, I just don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'll ever know. Certainly God, God doesn't expect much out of me because I'm probably not even genuinely a Christian. And if I go out and try to do spiritual things and the Spirit doesn't live in me, it'll all fall into space anyway. So I'm going to wait until I get assurance. Well, let me suggest to you that David knew the depths of his guilt. But not one time is there impression given by David in all of his prayers that he wasn't a servant and a son of God. Psalm 119 is an outstanding, an outstanding chapter. But the last verse in that wonderful passage, which may have been penned by Ezra, Psalm 119, the last verse, 176, See, here's the confession of a one who says, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Those are all perfectly evangelical confessions. But look what he says. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. He never forgot him. He never went to the degree of saying, I'm not a servant of God. I don't belong to God. I don't love God. I don't love God's law. I'm nothing. I don't believe in anything. He didn't go to that. It grieves the Spirit for you to overrule his testimony, founded in the blood and the righteousness of Christ, that you are a son of God, and to insist that you probably aren't because you don't see enough fruit. Do you follow what I'm saying? You're not doing God a service to be down in the mouth perpetually because you're not up to par uh, of the righteousness you've set for yourself. I can't believe that it's not not right for me to enjoy Christ because I don't deserve it. If I ever show any joy, it would be a contradiction to reality. Brethren, if you're a Christian, it's a contradiction for you to not rejoice. Don't talk yourself out of the things God freely has given you. It grieves the spirit. Abhorrence of self. Self-abasement. These are right. But they need not involve a denial of grace in the heart. Often that sense of self-abasement is evidence of grace in the heart. You grieve the spirit when you say he's lied to you. Christ is not enough. 
Until I measure up to a certain standard, I will reject any confidence of salvation. Dear brethren, I know this is a delicate matter, but don't grieve the Spirit by undervaluing His own work in you. Sometimes there is fruit and grace in you, but you don't want to hear it. Because you know what happens in the mind of those who recognize the grace of God? There's an heightened sense of responsibility. And you're afraid of what the Lord might want next of you if you admit he's done anything heretofore. And it's a nice little ploy of yours to keep people occupied with your pure, depressed soul just chatting about how bad you are. Then nobody's going to expect much of you. I tell you, as your pastor, I expect more out of every single one of you than you've delivered yet. As I do out of myself. And for some of you, much more. Don't say, well, I, you know, I've got all these sins. You yourself have counseled me about them. You know, what can I, I say to you? Mortify them. Stand up and march in the army of Christ. Don't grieve the Spirit by undervaluing His work. But in the second aspect of unbelief, and I'll close with this one, it grieves the Spirit for us to misplace the ground of our hope. Undervaluing His work in us grieves him and misplacing the ground for our hope grieves him and I'm just going to mention two ways that we misplace the ground of our hope one way is we look for evidence in us rather than the work of Christ for us we keep wanting proof and we keep looking at us as the foundation of confidence but it is the Spirit's work to glorify Christ, to bear witness of Christ. And it grieves Him when you look away from Christ and His finished work and look inside yourself as your confidence. There is an element of fruit inspection. We've established that. But your ultimate hope never changes. It's always. It can never be anything but what Jesus did on Calvary and what he accomplished in his own righteousness that is given freely to us who believe. Dear brethren, after you've inspected the fruit and after you've found in every emaciated apple a worm and birds pecking and you have little hope of harvest of any good thing, run back to the root and the ground of your hope which is the Lord Jesus. And don't say, Lord... Make me righteous so I can get to heaven. Make me good so that I can be saved. Lord, save me so that I can be good. Lord, show evidence here to your glory. I see that there's such little fruit, such diminished grace, such poor exercise of gifts. Oh Lord, my hope is you. Alas, wretched man that I am. Have mercy on me. But you see the apostle? On the heels of his confession, who shall deliver me from this body of death? What did he say? I don't know. Hope someday somebody will show me a trick of the uh, spirit-filled life. Maybe there'll be a second blessing. And that's what some have done with that very text. They've taken chapter 7 of Romans, and they said, some of you Christians live in chapter 7. You're defeated Christians, carnal Christians. Then they said, chapter 8 is where you want to get. You want to live in a victorious life in chapter 8. Now, you don't need to stay in chapter 7. You need to get into chapter 8. Let me tell you what. As long as you're in this world, you're going to be in chapter 7. And as long as you're in this world as a believer, you're going to be in chapter 8. What you need 
is to grow in your comprehension of the love of Christ which passes knowledge and to know with all the saints what is the depth and the breadth and the width and the height. You need to comprehend chapter 8. But some of you need to comprehend chapter 7 too. You don't get out of one into the other. You live in both. Because when the apostle said, Who shall deliver me? He immediately testified, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No question about where the hope is. For a pitiful failure, the man of God can stand and preach Christ to a congregation of sinners recently from his own failure only because of his knowledge of the cross and the provision of Christ. If you waited for me to live three or four days a week before Sunday without sin, before I could be bold with you, you wouldn't have me preaching. Dear brethren, the devil knows how to kill a prayer meeting on Wednesday afternoon at home or at work. And he knows how to kill preaching and you're receiving of it on Sunday morning on the way to church and Sunday afternoon at home. What do you do when that happens? Well, we're having the Lord's Supper tonight. I made a fool of myself at home, yelled at my wife, my kids, lost my head, did everything Pastor Allen preached again or Pastor Sarver preached again. There's no point in my taking the Lord's Supper tonight. Gospel response to that is to say, Lord, I did it again. Have mercy on me, but my hope is Christ. And the very elements themselves testify that I still have access to God through Christ. Don't undervalue that. Don't misplace the ground of your hope by looking at the Spirit's work within and not looking at Christ's work without. But the second aspect, some of us are still looking to the arm of flesh for victory. Misplacing the ground of our hope, we're looking for our salvation somewhere other than Christ. At Kadesh Barnea, ten spies came back and they said, those guys are giants in our sight and we're grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way. God said, do it. God said, I've given the land to you. Take it. No, can't be true. Can't be true. You don't know how big I am. I'm little. The enemy's big. What is the sin, my dear brothers? What is the problem? What have you recently been tripped over again? And you're looking at it like a giant and you're a grasshopper. Don't do the Kadesh Barnea thing. Don't stop and miss victory because you've decided God's word isn't real. Don't trust the arm of flesh. You're right. You are a grasshopper and your sin is a giant and the devil will outwit you and you will not make it on your own. You're right. But it grieves the spirit when you decide because of that to give up and turn away from Christ and his ample provision for you. It grieves the spirit when you look for Egypt to bail you out, for your income, for houses and land, for a wife, for a husband, for children, for whatever it is that you think is going to solve your sadness and fill your lonely heart. I tell you, you'll never find it till you get Christ. And when you get Christ, I tell you, if you know Christ as you ought to know Christ, he'll be plenty. What shall it gain a man if you get the whole world and lose his soul, what if you get everything but Jesus? You have nothing. And what if all you get is Jesus? You have everything. None of the things that have caused you to worry this week, none of them, 
that have brought worry on you, if you had them all straight now, would have changed your basic disposition of unbelief. Not a one of them. If you got everything you demanded when you got it, you'd still question something in God's provision. Don't grieve the spirit by looking to the arm of flesh for confidence. Well, I've kept you a long time, dear brethren, but I wanted to get you at least this far. I wanted to turn some of you back away. What have you? What do you do if you've grieved the spirit? What if you're saying, Pastor, I believe that's what's wrong with me all these years? Well, I tell you what, you first thing you do, you run right back to the foot of the cross. Where else can you go? You go right back to the fount that's open for sin and uncleanness. And you deal honestly with God. You recognize that what you've done is touched the heart of God and broken it. And you've brought about this misery and this, this track record of failure and this defeatism. Bow to Christ, confess the sin, and look to him for deliverance. I suggest to you, some of you, please, God help you not to go out of this place without searching your heart today to see if there may be dwelling in your heart a grieved Holy Spirit. Some of you may think that your problems are caused by a million things other than your own doing. May God help you to understand that if God has departed, that if God has not blessed your life, there's somewhere to be found in you a need to change some attitude and behavior. And may we ask God not to allow us as a church to endure for a moment the thought that he's been grieved. And may he not be with us. Let us look to Christ in prayer. As you bow your heads, again I remind you who are not in Christ, that it is our longing that you know the Savior. And we want to help if we can in any way so you feel free to ask us questions or tell us what you're struggling with and we will jump on that wagon of help. May God help you to glean from things that have been said today that the Lord Jesus indeed is real and is your hope. Our Father and our God, how feeble has been our effort, how difficult it is for us in our darkness and in our ignorance to understand these matters. And so here, as in every other place, we cast ourselves upon you for help and for mercy. O oh Lord, if we have grieved your spirit, deal with us so that we will not go another moment not treating the problem. O oh Lord, be pleased to come and minister to our need and convict us of our sin and to make us see the truth in the inner man. And be our guide and our companion and draw your presence near to us, O oh Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to put right what's wrong. Minister to truth in the heart. O oh God, our Father, thank you that you're not as we are. And thank you for the ground of our hope which is in your Son. We lay ourselves in your presence pleading the mercies of Christ himself and laying our confidence in his blood and righteousness. Lord, hear our plea. Look upon the heart.
and deliver us in Jesus' name. Amen.